In the 40 years I've been presenting authors at Books and Books and the Miami Book Fair, there are those writers who leave an indelible mark, not only for the work they offer up, but also for the way they engage their readers and broaden our understanding of community and the responsibilities that the best among us take on to try to make our world a more humane place. Tracy holds a mirror up to the inequities many of us take for granted and present heroic individuals who strive to make a difference, inspiring all of us in the process. Like he did with the late and beloved Paul Farmer in Mountains Beyond Mountains, Tracy's Rough Sleepers chronicles another of these compelling figures. This time, it's Dr. Jim O'Connell, who has dedicated his career to caring for homeless patients. As Abraham Verghese, the author of Cutting for Stone, writes, I couldn't put Rough Sleepers down to the last page. Kidder's writing sidesteps labels like homeless to reveal the humanity of those who live on the streets. I agonized with the dedicated physician and the army of others who give their lives to a cause most of us pretend is invisible. I rejoiced in the fleeting victories. As with mountains beyond mountains, I am left in awe of the human spirit and inspired to do better. That is Kidder's genius. What follows is this episode of The Literary Life, and it's taken from Tracy's appearance in front of a live audience at the Carl Gables location of Books and Books. I found my way to the general subject of this book, homelessness, um, through a doctor named Jim O'Connell, Dr. Jim on the streets of Boston. I spent about five years with him. He was easy to be around, uh, open, friendly, happy. He was also mysterious in some ways. And the first mystery was how a person like him uh, could have ended up spending most of his life as a doctor to homeless people. He'd been a gifted working class kid. He set academic records at his high school. He graduated salutatorian of his class at Notre Dame. He got one B in four years there. Uh, and then he went on to the University of Cambridge, to Cambridge University in England to study philosophy. And when he was done there, Hannah Arendt, uh, probably the most notable philosopher of her time, chose him based on things he'd written to be uh, one of her teaching assistants. So obviously he had a lot of opportunities too many, I think, uh, to, find one, to find it easy to settle on one. Uh, he was 30 when he finally chose medicine. He was going to go to med school at the University of Vermont and become a country doctor. But they wouldn't even let him apply because they said he was too old. He wouldn't have sufficient stamina. So he settled for Harvard uh, and <laughs> went on to, went on to a, res, a prestigious residency at the Massachusetts the Massachusetts General Hospital, and was about to start a fellowship at Sloan Kettering in New York when um, two senior and eminent physicians at Mass General uh, asked him to take a, a short detour in his career. Uh, they asked him to spend a year, just a year, helping to create a uh, healthcare system for Boston's homeless people. This was in 1985, and the need for something like that was obvious. 
homelessness was rising dramatically all over the country. The uh, emergency rooms were, were absolutely jammed with people who didn't have doctors. But Jim wanted no part of this effort. He'd started his medical career late. He didn't think he had time for detours. And besides, in his three years of residency at Mass General, he'd absorbed the hospital's, hospital's general code, which was to pursue excellence in medicine and a corollary to that, which was not to mistake yourself for an ordinary doctor. It was one thing to treat the excluded and despised within the citadel of Mass General, another to uh, imagine doctoring them in dreary clinics elsewhere. But he felt he couldn't refuse these. Um, he really admired these men, and he loved the institution. And he felt as though the institution itself were asking him for this favor. Soon afterwards, he found himself at his first duty station inside the, cl uh, the clinic at the Pine Street Inn, which is Boston's largest homeless shelter. This was called the Nurses Clinic, founded by nurses and run by nurses. And as soon as he got there, they sat him down and admonished him. He was probably planning to come and play doctor to a bunch of homeless men, earn their trust, and then desert them after a year. He probably thought he was coming to do a good deed and felt as if they were accusing him of having committed this act already, as he had done, in fact, inwardly. And he sat there and took it. Then a nurse named Barbara McGinnis uh, led him out to the shelter's chaotic lobby, a big room full of odors and people milling around. And there, amid the clamor of voices, Barbara explained that, unlike some of the other nurses, she actually thought the clinic ought to be served by a doctor. But you've been trained all wrong, she said. Most, if not all, of the clinic's patients had experienced severe trauma, and the typical doctor's approach often terrified them. So it would take time and patience and a lot of listening before you'd even have the chance to act clinically. You have to let us retrain you, she said. If you come in with your doctor questions, you won't learn anything. You have to learn to listen to these patients. She impounded his stethoscope, and she told him, come on in now, and, I'm gonna, and you're going to soak feet. I'll show you how. Years later, I asked Jim why he put up with all of this. And he told me, I don't know if it's a weakness or not, but I've always had a hard time saying no. And this was true in my experience of him. An old colleague of his put the matter differently, a little more uh, sharply. Uh, he said, I've never known where I stood with him because he's so effing nice. Jim would go to great lengths uh, to avoid confrontation. I think that was a weakness sometimes, but a strength at most others, uh, especially at that moment with Barbara McGinnis, because this taste for, for confrontation kept him from pulling rank, from pointing out that he was a, a doctor, a full-fledged doctor, and she was just a nurse. In other words, restraint left him open to other ways of seeing besides his own and indeed, as it turned out, the whole new way of thinking about medicine. In those first, uh, the first part of that year of giving back, Jim worked at many different sites, but he spent three afternoons and evenings each week at the nurses' clinic, soaking patients' feet and not doing much else for, for two months. Among the regulars was a very large man, <clears throat> usually dressed in three layers of coats, with wary eyes and a salt and pepper beard and a great wave of white and gray hair that looked like it was in flight. <clears throat> and I can't use his 
first his real name uh, because of HIPAA. I'll, I'll call him Mr. Carr. Jim <clears throat> knew him from Mass General's emergency room. The police had brought him to, the, to that ER repeatedly because they didn't know what else to do with him. Mr. Carr was classified as a paranoid schizophrenic, and his chart was thick, a record of 25 years of what is known in standard medicine as noncompliance or treatment resistance. Uh, Jim had tried to tend to Mr. Carr in the Mass General ER, but the man had always refused medications and admission to the hospital, and Jim and his colleagues had always had to just release him back to the streets untreated. Mr. Carr didn't talk to Jim for weeks in the nurse's clinic. Finally, one evening as Jim knelt on the floor, uh, filling the tubs for the man's feet to soak in, his feet were so huge and swollen that Jim had to use a tub for each. Uh, he heard Mr. Carr say, hey, I thought you were supposed to be a doctor. He, he was looking down at Jim with a suggestion of a smile on his face. And, and last month, no one around this place had called Jim a doctor. He said, yes, I am. I'm a doctor. <laughs> then the guy said, so, so what the hell are you doing soaking feet? Jim glanced around. He saw Barbara McGinnis and other nurses nearby, obviously eavesdropping. And so he looked back up at Mr. Carr and he said, you know what? I just do what the nurses tell me to do. And, and Mr. Carr nodded and he said, smart man, that's what I do. About a week, a week later, the old man put his feet in the buckets and said to Jim, asked Jim if he could give him something to help him sleep. He said he hardly slept at all. And uh, within a few weeks after that, Jim had him on a number of uh, treatments. Foot soaking in a homeless shelter, uh, the biblical connotations were obvious, <clears throat> but what counted to Jim uh, were the practical lessons. For instance, the way this simple therapy reversed the usual order, Place, placing the doctor at the foot of the person he was trying to, uh, trying to serve. As a doctor in training, he'd spent most of his time telling patients what he thought. Uh, we need to get that blood pressure down. Or, I'm, I'm alarmed by the results of your kidney tests. This new approach was completely opposite. Uh, and he began to realize that it was much more effective clinically, at least with homeless people. These were men who wandered around uh, all day on concrete and stood in lines for hours to get a bed or a meal. Uh, when they came into the clinic, they were usually exhausted and their feet were sore. They'd look, uh, let you look at their feet before they'd let you examine any other part of them. Cases of athletes' foot corns, toenails that had gone uncut for years and were coiled around and around themselves. All were uncomfortable and easily fixed, as was immersion French foot. Um, a nurse at another shelter taught him her honey-based treatment for that. Uh, after he applied it, the patients were always grateful for, the, for relief from the itching, incessant itching, and many were willing then to talk about other invisible things that were bothering them. Moreover, feet were often diagnostic in themselves. Uh, they revealed important internal problems, such as neuropathies from drinking and vitamin B12 deficiencies. Loss of feeling in the feet were like an alarm telling him he'd better try to get this patient to the hospital. Uh, you could also read a patient's likely future in the, in the uh, damage, the signs that, that frostbite and trench foot leave uh, in a person's feet. Um, Jim and a colleague made a small study of death record, records some years later, which suggested that patients with a history of frostbite and trench foot uh, had a death rate eight times higher 
than other homeless people of the same age group. So around the time of his success with Mr. Carr, Jim's retraining at the nurse's uh, clinic ended. Uh, Barbara McGinnis gave him back his stethoscope. <laughs> when it started in 1985, the system that Jim was supposed to help already had a name, a brick wall of a name, the Boston Healthcare for the Homeless Program. Jim called it the program. <clears throat> there were eight medical personnel. Jim figured out how to deploy them in teams of two and worked alongside them. He often said he had been conscripted into this job and his enlistment was for only a year. But when that year ended, he felt he'd left too much undone. And besides, Barbara McGinnis had become his guru, his close friend, <clears throat> and he figured that if he left then, she'd never forgive him. He wrote to Sloan Kettering, ask if they defer his fellowship for a year. In the shelter clinics and out on the streets, he was coming face to face with dozens and dozens of people who hadn't seen a doctor in years, let alone a psychiatrist or a dentist. He, had, he saw many people with rotted teeth, many cases of scabies and lice. He came across people with AIDS. There was a AIDS, the AIDS epidemic began just around that time in Boston, as did a, a, a smaller epidemic of drug-resistant tuberculosis. Um, but he saw people discharged with no platelets. Uh, including a few who would appear in the who appeared in the lights of the outreach van uh, with blood flowing from their noses and ears. Um, and he met Jim met an elderly man who looked fairly normal until he took off his hat at Jim's request, revealing a grotesque-looking cancer that had invaded his his uh, his head, paralyzing the left side of his face. And that patient had been a professor at MIT had suffered a psychotic break, and had been living on the streets for years, no one noticing or caring to notice what must have started as a small, easily treated basal cell carcinoma, now metastasized into an overspreading fatal growth. At times, Jim imagined that he and his colleagues were practicing disaster medicine, as if this underbelly of Boston was in the midst of a war or had been hit by an earthquake. The situation was appalling, the work was overwhelming, and he had to admit to himself it was utterly fascinating. It was obvious that he and his colleagues uh, weren't addressing the many root causes of their patients' misery. What they were doing was trying to figure out how to ameliorate some of the deepest suffering that lurked in the city, and that job seemed challenging enough. How do you treat HIV in a person who has no place to live? How do you treat diabetes in patients who often can't find their next meals? How do you treat physical illnesses and mentally ill patients whose activities of daily living are completely determined by the consumption of alcohol, the search for narcotics? At medical school, questions like that just hadn't come up. He and his colleagues had to look for the answers themselves with a lot of help from Barbara McGinnis. The work consumed virtually all his waking hours, about 100 hours a week, he figured. I actually saw one of his um, worksheets from back then, and he, it was true, it was 100 hours. But he recalled thinking, well, this is easier than residency anyway. <laughs> this was his first job as a full-fledged doctor. He wanted to do it well. The hours were just what it took. As for managing the emotional side of the work, for a while he could fall back on his medical school training in compartmentalization. You're in a hospital, you go into one room where the patient is very sick and failing, 
And then when you enter the next room, you forget the tragedy unfolding in the, the previous one and, and concentrate on the person in front of you. Eventually, though, he couldn't shut out any of the rooms. Uh, each patient's problems would accumulate all week. And on Friday nights, when the Pine Street Clinic closed, he and Barbara McGinnis and many of the staff would drive over to part of Boston known as Jamaica Plain and crowd into Doyle's pub. Uh, and they'd drink and talk about how maddening it felt to witness deaths that could have been prevented and how if you fixed one problem for a patient, the same patient was back the next week with half a dozen more. Um, the effect of the talk and the beer was cathartic. Jim would usually sit beside Barbara at the bar and drive her home afterward along with some of the other uh, uh, colleagues. Barbara lived alone with her mother and she had no TV, so Jim sometimes would take her and some of the other providers to his place uh, so that she could watch her favorite TV show, which was Miami Vice. <laughs> he, he never quite figured out what she uh, saw in it, but he enjoyed watching her enjoy it. Some nights at Doyle's, he would uh, rebel against his normal practice and rant a little to her. How could this country treat people this way? How could Americans never have had their own doctor, never have even have seen one, never have been given a screening, never have been given anything? Barbara would listen, and in her high but somehow calming voice, she would tell him, Jim, you're a doctor. You're not God. There are things you can't fix. You just have to do your work. He bought into that notion. He told himself that he was just going to dig in, do his job, and not look beyond it. He recalled saying to himself, this is what I was trained for. I wanted to take care of sick people. And oh my God, have I landed in a spot where people are sick. At the end of that second year, he called Sloan Kettering to say that he wouldn't be coming after all. No one knows exactly, or even close, frankly, how many uh, Americans struggle to survive without homes at one time or another during the course of a year. But that number is at least several million, many more millions than public authorities are going to tell you. And many more millions than that, many more, live in fear of getting trapped in homelessness. I want, to, I want to digress for a minute over that term, homelessness. Uh, there's a school of thought that would have us describe the victims of this condition as unsheltered or unhoused and would have us never say the homeless. I imagine, I'm sure, good intentions have inspired this new terminology, but I know a lot of people who have reservations, which I share. First of all, the new terms do nothing to curb homelessness, and they tend to understate its horrors. Many homeless people really are homeless, not just lacking a roof, but they're estranged from their families and from our society. And many don't survive the, their outcast state for very long. Chronic homelessness, homelessness as a continuous fact of life, is both humiliating and lethal. In Boston, the people who spend most of their nights in shelters have a death rate four times that of their counterparts uh, in the general population. And the people who shun the shelters outside, the rough sleepers, die at 10 to 14 times the normal rate. In cities, towns, everywhere, visions of the misery that accompany homelessness confront us every day. Uh, how should we respond? It often feels like a hard question to me. Sometimes some of us perform a mental trick, a sleight of mind, that uh, allows us to step over the body of that man uh, sleeping in the doorway or to drive past 
that woman standing on the corner with her imploring cardboard sign dissolving in the rain. Um, and uh, sometimes we can do this without quite seeing those people. Some people think, uh, I'm not going to give this man money because he'll probably use it to buy drugs. That approach has one advantage, only one to me. It lets us walk off with a sense of moral purpose without having done anything. Others of us hand over a dollar or maybe $20 while looking away, and that's what I usually do or used to do. Hanging around with Jim, I felt as though he offered a much better example. Uh, not a technique exactly, but more like a disposition. A young colleague of his from years back once explained this to me. He said, even the average extrovert is not super excited about meeting somebody, somebody who smells bad, who's wearing tattered clothes, is lying on the ground and asking for money. But it's possible to do. And Jim was the most powerful example I'd ever seen in my life of somebody who was doing that naturally. I think that Jim has an attitude of pre-admiration for the people he doesn't yet know. His presumption is, oh, I'm eventually going to like this person. I will probably find some reason over time to like them. I just happen not to know it yet. <laughs> I first met Jim in 2014 as a guest on the nighttime tour that he routinely made on a state-funded outreach van. I remember being struck by the visual irony of places like Newbury Street uh, in Boston with its art galleries, boutiques, and cafes, where late at night the usual people, many of them Jim's patients, slept in cardboard boxes or, and under the gray government surplus blankets that the van distributed. The sleepers were variously positioned inside the Gothic doorway of the Church of the Covenant on the pavement beside the windows of the public radio station under the display windows of Brooks Brothers Clothiers, and when the nights were cold in front of the grate in the Brooks Brothers Alley, which emitted hot air. I was struck most forcefully by the relationships between this Harvard-educated physician and the people the van encountered. His patients and prospective patients were sleeping in doorways, arguing drunkenly with statues and parks. But Jim's disposition toward everyone he met out there was remarkable to me. He, here he was, pre-admiring pre the new people he met and acting with frank affection for the people he had pre-admired long ago, post-admiring them, I guess. I was, I was left with a memory of vivid faces and voices and with a general impression of harsh survival leavened by friendship between a doctor and his patients. Jim was pushing 70 when I met him, but he was still lively, a lively man with silver hair, still president of the Boston Healthcare for the Homeless Program, and still doctoring. By then, his patients were all rough sleepers. Um, the, those, you know, the people who sleep in the rough on park benches, ATM, in ATM parlors, doorways, tents on the outskirts of cities. He had one patient who slept in a rented storage locker. I think the term could also have been applied to Jim on those nights when he was aroused in his bed by pages from certain longtime patients or even on his phone by one or one longtime patient who somehow had got his number, uh, or by worries about patients who he wished would call. A lot of people in this country, and I think in others, are working with great competence and enthusiasm, even brilliance uh, and imagination, to cure this disgraceful illness in our society. Speaking just for myself, I'm thankful for them. Will they end homelessness? Probably not in their lifetimes, certainly not within mine. 
But I like to think that they're lighting pathways into the darkness, uh, pathways that others might follow. They offer the rest of a summer leaf, something approximated in a thought like, yeah, maybe the big goal can't be reached tomorrow, but look at all the good stuff that's being done today. By 2020, the program that Jim played a large part in creating had become a model of what can be done to alleviate suffering among the poorest of the poor. The program staff had grown from eight to more than 400. They were caring for about 11,000 homeless, pe homeless people each year, unduplicated 11,000, uh, offering them a wide array of services. The landscape of the practice was like a subway map of the city, 30 clinics, one in each of the city's shelters, and two affiliated with giant hospitals where patients could receive specialty care. And the lobby of its headquarters was like a train station, a line of patients at the pharmacy window where 1,500 prescriptions were filled each day, a gaggle of patients sitting in the waiting room of the dental clinic where three full-time dentists were at work. You know, in the world's richest country, the rich and poor are also starkly divided by their teeth. A wide variety of other special teams also had their headquarters here, a, a team that served unhoused transgender people, a team that focused on the treatment of AIDS and hepatitis C, a, a street team, which Jim ran, uh, that looked after the city's several hundred, hundred rough, rough sleepers, They're the roughest of the rough sleepers, that is, those who shunned the shelters even during Boston's winters. They, those people referred to the ones who would go back inside in the winter as snowbirds. <laughs> the, the, the three floors above the lobby housed what seemed like the program's crown jewel, a 104-bed respite hospital, the Barbara McGinnis House, reserved for homeless people in need of recuperation from illnesses and surgeries and from the rigors of life in shelters and on the streets. It's a wonderful thing. Boston could probably use four of them. Um, Los Angeles could probably use 30. The budget for all this uh, was roughly $60 million a year. Most of that came from Medicaid, um, which, as you all know, states have, states have great latitude in determining how much uh, Medicaid is going to provide in the way of health care. Massachusetts is one of the most generous, and, and the succession of governors and especially of mayors in Boston have, have always uh, supported the program. One could imagine objections to this uh, expanding practice. Many people who work and pay taxes struggle to pay for their health insurance. Why should their money go to providing something that looks like concierge medicine for people who live in, at public expense, for people who produce nothing except indecent public spectacles and don't even try to take care of themselves? For Jim and his colleagues, the answers were obvious. The program's patients were broken people, often damaged from infancy, and it was a moral imperative that the program mend what they could. Jim once told me that he wanted to answer that kind of criticism by saying, we're making up for what wasn't done for our patients, what you, meaning society, didn't provide, schools, jobs, safety. In fact, the program has lightened some of the burdens that homeless people place on other medical organizations in Boston. For instance, by providing good care at a lower cost than is possible inside hospital emergency rooms. There was another critique that I heard, uh, that the program had become a part of the homelessness industry, that it was using resources that should be devoted to creating permanent supportive housing. That kind of criticism was accurate in one respect, at least. The program isn't aimed at ending homelessness 
just some of its greatest miseries. Or as Jim once said to me, this is what we do while we're waiting for the world to change. There's a lot more to say about homelessness, uh, its roots, and po the possibilities for fixing it. In my book, I've tried to offer at least a sense of the current landscape of problems and efforts, but I've tried to do this mainly through Jim and his patients. Uh, what I most wanted to do was to create an incarnation of the problem, to offer a living instance through the stories of a variety of homeless people and the people caring for them. <clears throat> Some of the homeless people I, I got to know, I uh, post admired, <laughs> or just admired, were, lacked the basic skills that uh, we take for granted. When you finally get an apartment, uh, how would you know how to keep it clean if you'd never been taught the rudiments of housekeeping? More often, they lack not skills, but basic facilities. How to keep yourself clean in a city that has virtually no public bathrooms? Deficits like that can make a homeless person seem intractably primitive or even alien. But that's only if we see them from the corners of our eyes. If we got to know them, we'd probably like some and dislike others. But we would have to acknowledge the uncomfortable fact that all of them carry the most complex structure in the known universe on their shoulders, <clears throat> that all of them are every bit as human as you and I. When I began my adventure with Jim, he and his street team still had a large panel of long-term patients, old classics, Jim called them. They also had new patients, including one whom I found utterly fascinating. But if you want to know about him, you'll have to read my book. <laughs> he also kept the pantheon of especially vivid and mysterious patients from the past, from back in his, from the, his three decades of practice. Some of them were remembered in photographs that he had taken. A selection of these hung on both sides of the hallway outside his office. It was like an exhibition. The portraits hung at eye level. <clears throat> when I walked by, I would imagine their eyes turning to follow me. Jim gave me several tours of this gallery, sometimes pausing at length before a photo to tell the story that it contained. For instance, the man who called himself a judge. Jim used to find him lying drunk on the sidewalk, and the judge would awaken and adopt his dignified persona, lifting his head from the pavement and saying, with the roundest of, roundest of O's, oh, good evening, Dr. O'Connell. He had never been a judge. Uh, a friend who really was a judge had determined this for Jim, but he never abandoned the role, not even on his deathbed, when Jim was beside him holding his hand, wanting to ask him who he really was. The judge's photograph comes from near the end of his life when after 30 years on Boston streets, he had been housed in a two-room apartment. He called the living room his chambers. There at his desk, uh, in the middle of the floor, he would expound quite accurately on landmark cases in constitutional law. He had probably, probably been through some horrible experiences, said Jim, staring, you know, as he stared at the picture. We don't know what they were. We'll never know and to continue living and to, an ima to imagine himself doing good things, I think. He took on the persona of a judge and poured in invented memories. Maybe it's the delusion that keeps some people going and allows them to be functional. And if you take that away, they're left with nothing but sorrow and wounds. The lesson for us was you just have to accept him and figure out what you can do, but not push too far. The first photo that Jim took of a patient in many ways, the most significant, uh, didn't hang in the hallway. Uh, it's a picture of a woman whom I call Gretel, another name I've had to change because of HIPAA. Uh, years of hard drinking had left her 
with end-stage cirrhosis. She was going to die. Jim and his colleagues pled her case with specialists who finally agreed to consider her for a liver transplant if she could achieve six months of proven sobriety. She went into McGinnis House and quit drinking for good. A few days before the surgery, she asked Jim to take her picture. She had lived on the streets for decades. At night on the outreach van, he used to find her on the stoop of an abandoned building surrounded by foul-smelling stuff, spoiled milk, rotten eggs, worse, <clears throat> which she assembled to fend off nocturnal predators, human ones. I mean, uh, When she was living outside, he never saw her dressed in anything but filthy rags. But when she appeared for the picture-taking, she was transformed. She had put on a dress, also mascara, lipstick, and nail polish. In the photo, she looks weathered in the face, but elegant, fashionably thin, proudly erect. On the table beside her, she's placed a bunch of cut flowers in a styrofoam coffee cup. Jim had wondered what all this meant. Was she afraid she would die in surgery? She laughed at the suggestion. She reminded him that she had been a woman living on the street for decades, in danger of dying every night. And then, said Jim, she explained to me that she had two kids, two daughters, and one had been three years old, I think, and the other had been five, six years old when she last saw them, and that was about 25 years ago. And she was worried that should they ever go looking to see who their mother was or what happened to their mother, there wouldn't be a picture of someone they could at least be proud of. Until Gretel, Jim had refrained from, from photographing patients. He thought they might feel embarrassed or exploited. But the day after he took her picture, 22 others came to him asking that he take their pictures too. He was uh, surprised, but he thought he understood. They wanted something to show they passed this way, he told me. I started to think that loneliness is really what drives much of what goes on in our world. Trying to fill that emptiness can be a real challenge. Gretel survived the transplant. She lived for another five years, sober and housed. At almost every one of his hundreds of lectures, Jim has projected the photograph for which she'd gotten all dressed up more than 20 years ago, and he's always told her story to the audience in the hope that one of her daughters might be sitting out there. He'd had Gretel's portrait printed and framed, but he had set it aside ever since for safekeeping. I never put it on the wall here, he told me, because I'm holding it for her daughters. I don't know if they're ever going to come looking for her or not. And that's... Um, brief precy of my book. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks.